Tails, more well-established lesbian. Chapter 54 Painting myself into a corner, literally and metaphorically speaking, in that first few weeks living with Paul, losing the car is a huge blow to all of my plans. To my independence. To my freedom. It's stupid, I know, but I actually feel less butch too. I mean, I'm not sure I can convince a bus driver to kind of nip off route to pick up a date, for example. And then there's how much this is going to limit my dating scope. My radius, should I say. Unless she lives in an area with good transport links, it's pretty much going to be a no-go. The folks who took my car let me go back and get all my stuff out of it before I fully abandoned it. I figured I'd leave a lot of the crap. After all, they can do the charity shop run. I got stopped from doing as I cleared out my glove box of mixed CDs. Can't let go of those well-established lesbian volume 36 mix CDs, can I? Burning CDs really wasn't ever as fun as making a mixtape, now was it? And I always miss those tracks where you get just a little bit of the DJ too. That was this week's number five. I came home from the impound clutching a carrier bag of car crap that is now all completely useless. I think I'm going full five stages of grief over my car and possibly my driving license. I swear to you, I couldn't have really cared less about turning 18. It was 17. That had always been the big birthday to me. You know, the one where things can really open up if you're lucky enough to have parents like mine or if you're determined to make it happen. For example, I had a mate who paid for it all herself. The only Nissan Micra I have never said a bad word about was hers. I mean, I do feel like the rest of them should be put into room 101, no doubt. But that one, she was so proud of. And I didn't blame her one bit. And in fairness, she never laughed at my fear panda, which was very kind of her, because it was laughable. <laughs> anyway, I've made my way relatively quickly through denial, anger, bargaining. All right, we went back to denial and there was some more bargaining and then there was anger again. And then there was the whole depression bit. But the mundane sort of meditative nature of decorating is giving me plenty of time to sort of, you know, work through it. They say every person, when they get quiet, when they become desperately honest with themselves, are capable of uttering profound truths. Okay, so it's not like I am discovering universal profound truths here, right? But it is more than time I called myself out. Because, you know, I say a lot of things, but I'm not doing a lot about them. And that lack of follow-through is killing me. You know, not adulting, not engaging with the things I don't like doing, not just being on top of my shit. I mean, that, that in and of itself, means I am going to be a bus wanger for the next couple of years. This moment right here is too important to squander. I say I'm not happy climbing the corporate ladder, doing the proper job, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses. But what is going to make me happy? Is it finding a new career? Or do I just want a job that pays the bills while I go off and chase my dreams on the side? And that kind of sounds really good, but what are my dreams? I mean, I do suspect that the Olympics are a little beyond me now. 
and X Factor's not really a thing anymore. And, uh, well, you know, can't really sing. I mean, not that that's ever stopped anyone, but I'm just saying. The art thing has really taken a back seat. Turns out monetizing it has quickly sapped all of the joy from it. God, I wish they paid us to announce roller derby. I would do that all day long. Since the beginning of the year, I have been volunteering myself to announce all over the country. I'll drive hours in almost any direction to announce any game that'll have me. I'm loving it. My derby smarts are growing and those eight people in the audience seem to like my patter. My favorite bit though is like when the skaters on track can hear me making cracks about them on the microphone and then they react. Watching a laughing jammer pick themselves up after I vividly described their destruction is great. It's like when I'm shouting at the game on the TV at home except now they can hear me and I do have to watch my swearing. People though, they seem to like what I'm doing and I swear to God there is nothing better than when you get the audience laughing. If I could bottle that feeling, I swear I'd dab a little bit on every morning and go about my day like a rock star. Or well, more accurately, a comedian, obviously. That skater's mum though, she is not the first person to suggest that I try my hand at stand-up comedy friends, feedback forms from training sessions. It's been suggested to me a fair few times. And I always laugh it off. I could never, I say. I'm not that kind of funny. I mean, I do think I'm actually just mean, but I'm delivering it just right so people laugh. Oh, but that feeling when the room laughs is so good. Could I do stand-up comedy? All right, I've clearly gone mad. Wait, no, I've just not ventilated the house while I paint. I'm just high on paint, clearly. But it's still playing on my mind when Paul gets home. So we go out and we sit on the deck and we discuss our days and we're both leaning back looking at the sky. I'm trying to blow smoke rings as Paul obliterates them in clouds of sickly, sweet-smelling vape. A comfortable silence is upon us. One that I am about to ruin. Mate, you reckon I could do stand-up? Well, that has got his attention. Paul leans forward. Your biggest problem is going to be that women aren't funny. I make a mental note to punch him on my way back in the house. Sarcasm out of his system, though. Paul launches into a full technical comedy breakdown styles, techniques. Holy shit. He takes comedy way more seriously than I ever have or knew that you could. As he compares your one-liners to your storytellers and then we reenact the Death Star canteen scene by Eddie Izzard because, well, we mentioned it and then you have to, it's just the law. I start thinking that maybe there might be more to this comedy business than just sort of being funny which sounds odd, but writing jokes. I mean, how the hell do you write a joke? I'm no pun master, and the relentless one-line style is not very me. Paul's still talking about the technical aspects of comedy, and I'm starting to think this is clearly a ridiculous idea. I haven't got a clue about after stuff he is talking about. And the more he talks, the more ridiculous it feels, so I decide we best move the conversation along. I switch it to discussing Paul's dating app action. 
who's made it from Tinder to WhatsApp, who might make it onto an actual date with him, who will just get the one night visit action. I mean, it's been a long time since I have lived with a boy or spent masses of time with one. Around women, I often feel out of place. Like I can't really relate to a lot of the conversation or quite often I don't want to relate to it. This whole odd man out syndrome, and I do mean man, because in my world of mostly straight or straight passing friends, I often feel like the dude in a situation. Sometimes it actually makes me feel more butch than perhaps I'm actually perceived by others, purely just because I'm so at odds with my environment. And as I said, I'm often assigned the man role in a situation, mostly I think because I look the part and I do know some of the lines, let's be honest. Maybe I am more of a bloke, a lad, a guy. I do think that to myself sometimes. And then, like now, I spend a lot of time with a real fella and I know I'm not one of them. And nor do I want to be one. I mean, Paul makes my heart ache at times. I can see the toxic masculinity strangling the vulnerability and the softness out of situations he finds himself in. It's a lot easier for me to see, of course, because it's his life, not my own. And I have spent a lot of time judging Paul over the years. You know, for a start, our approach to women has often differed wildly. And I'm still judging him now because I see some of the same patterns playing out over and over again, especially now I live here and get a front row to all of it. And I do understand that I am throwing rocks in my glass house because Ashley and I are on some weird sort of repetitive loop like magnets who can only get so close before they're flung apart again. And still, there's no harm in a little bit of do as I say, not do as I do here. I don't think that I can change Paul, but I do think that I can argue for his lady guest to at least get a pillow. We don't need to be so afraid of commitment that we try to drive them off through the medium of bedding. How I Met Your Mother, the show, has a lot to answer for, let me tell you. I have got a cunning plan to remind Paul that women are complex human beings too, capable of all sorts of wonderful things. And back to the judging, Paul is only really meeting a certain kind of woman. So it's time to get him to spend a day around a few empowered, kick-ass women. Plus, I really need a lift to the roller derby now, so I'm not going to say I sold it to him on particularly feminist lines. I may have got him there under the guise of women in hot pants hitting each other, but you know, I feel like the end justifies the means. So, you know, he's going to quickly learn that I have vastly, vastly understalled them and their abilities. So we're off for our day out in Oxford. Standard situation for me, two games back to back and I am gonna talk through them both. And in fact, I'm gonna do that solo. What a lucky crowd. Three to four hours of me alone on a microphone. Ah, oh, what a treat. Let's do this. Paul agrees to be my helpful assistant as we head on in to find the head rep. I spot her and I let her know that I am the announcer. Paul is standing silently next to me. The head ref, she addresses everything to him for the next 30 seconds until he interrupts her and reminds her that I am the announcer. Wasn't quite 
How I was hoping a roller derby would remind Paul that women are people too, but even if it is arse about face, I'll take it. Ten points to Paul. Nil poire for the referee. I settle into the game and I've got my catchphrases rolling, my play-by-play commentary is getting better and weirdly one of the biggest improvements I've made to my announcing is learning when not to talk. Because, as I said, those skaters on the track can hear me. So when I'm giving away vital information, they don't love it. It'd be a bit like telling the goalkeeper which way the penalty kick is going to go. It's a bad idea. Paul, it turns out, is making a great assistant. He's really starting to understand the game now and he gets what information I need to make me look super good at my job. He goes off and collects me penalty stats and he's helped keeping track of all those little bits of scoring knowledge to add to my commentary. The other time I've discovered it's wise to shut up is during an injury timeout. Honestly, nobody wants to be urged to buy a raffle ticket after seeing a skater go down with a limb pointing in a very unnatural direction. It's best to just shh at that point. And we've got an injury timeout now. So I'm checking my team rosters, I'm amending my pronunciations of their crazy roller derby names, and I'm checking that I've got all of the stuff that they want me to push on the mic. We've got quite a decent crowd in today. I don't really know if they can actually hear me because the acoustics in leisure centres are um, interesting, shall we say. I'm scanning the crowd. We've got mums, we've got dads, we've got husbands who've been left holding the baby. Oxford has pulled in a decent crowd of their mates too. It's impressive, honestly, because convincing people to come to your roller derby game can be an uphill struggle. I swear, it's why we always have cake. Booze really does help too, but you know, leisure centres, not so hot on that, not loving it. This team here are clearly relying on friendship, cake and um, perhaps a little obligation. Whatever it is, it's working for them. It's her long dark hair that I noticed first. It is so shiny. She's got her back to me and she is wearing a cute little sundress. She turns her head slightly and she is a beautiful, I cannot take my eyes off her as she is laughing with her friends. She's kind of graceful in her movements and all of a sudden everyone else is out of focus and this girl in the sundress and the million necklaces is front and centre. Paul has to nudge me back to reality. I snap out of it and I'm back into the game as soon as the whistle goes to resume play. I can only hold my focus between whistles while the wheels are in motion because otherwise I'm just trying to get another glimpse of her. Where'd she go? Who's she here with? Do I know them? Can I get an introduction? As the game speeds by, I can't quite calculate an angle to use for my approach. I walk past her a couple of times in the breaks and we've managed to make some eye contact and, you know, a little smile too, but no more. I should really do something sooner rather than later because what if she's not staying for the second game? Oh, why are my hands all sweaty? Just relax your weirdo if she doesn't leave after the first game then right i'm gonna go and talk to her that's my decision made if she leaves she leaves it wasn't to be right now focus on trying to make this somewhat one-sided game sound good it's time to get the crowd behind the underdogs derby folks love an underdog even the home crowd will cheer on the underdog 
provided the point situation stays comfortable enough, of course. You couldn't have called it a comeback, but pride was salvaged in the second half. It at least made the trip seem like less of a waste of fuel, I'm sure. The girl in the sundress, who had caught my eye, was deep in conversation with some of the skaters from the first game. There seemed to be some sort of home team association. This was good news. Paul and I step outside, and, like the annoying human and uh, best mate that he is, he calls me out on the fact that I seem to be somewhat distracted. Who is she? I explain the young lady who has caught my eye. Paul nods in approval. He had noticed her too. And now he activates wingman mode. Oh God, it is like when you press a button on a toy in a quiet shop and it explodes with like lights and sirens and then you're desperately trying to turn it off or stuff it up your jumper to muffle the noise. You know, I am about as successful at shutting Paul down as I am at trying to silence one of those noisy toys on demo mode. And of course, at this particular moment, who walks out of the door? Yes, sundress girl. For someone who doesn't believe in God, I look to the heavens far too regularly for help. Mostly, I grant you, when I'm with Paul. Please, deity of unknown persuasion, do not let Paul make me look like a total dickhead. She looks over and smiles at me as she stands across the way with her friends. There's a hint of something in that smile, just sort of tucked in the corner. It might be the start of a smirk or a grin, perhaps. It looks whichever way cut it like mischief to me and I hope it is I'm still though trying to work out how to break the ice when I hear it cracking without any intervention from me Paul has attracted himself an admirer unlike me she is not backwards in coming forwards she's in there like swimwear she's not going for the subtle approach no no you've got to love her style especially as Paul is actually a little bit on the back foot now, having been caught off guard. Paul's admirer has created the perfect moment for me and I have to take it. I step into the space she's left in the group right next to Sundesk Girl. Everyone is watching the two of them flirt like it's a nature documentary. I lean in towards Sundress Girl and give her my best David Attenborough. Here, we see the male of the species flummoxed by the reversal of the standard mating ritual. She laughs and sort of hits me. She turns. He does look a little surprised, she says, as we both watch Paul try to handle this woman who is making herself very clear. Yeah, I'm sure he's surprised. I mean, we were just standing there working out how I could ask you for your number. I mean, not my best effort, not my worst effort. She laughs and looks at me oh really 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 i mean though thinking about it i probably should have just asked you and not paul so now i'm here how do i get your number she is thoroughly amused by my efforts and i am totally intrigued by her and the tattoos that seem to disappear into the dress you know the best person to ask for my number would probably be my girlfriend i'm pretty sure she knows it off by heart not straight, but not single. Damn it. Still, that's one of the flirtiest shutdowns I've had in a while. I'm going to console myself with the notion that she would have if she was single. Oh, what's that game too is starting up soon. Of course I can run away from this now somewhat awkward situation. Paul can fend for himself. 
I think. Maybe. I look over my shoulder as Paul's admirer is now laying her hand on his chest and starts ooing at his muscles. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine. Back to the microphone for me. I've got raffle tickets to promote. So, that's twice I have put myself out there now and been rejected. And do you know what? The world did not end. I mean, I got lucky. They both did let me down quite gently. But still, the world not ended. Not over. The opposite, in fact. I actually feel pretty proud of myself for even trying. It takes Paul most of the first half of the second game to extricate himself from the clutches of Holly. And Holly and Isabella, it turns out, are friends. Of course, her name is Isabella. A gorgeous name for a gorgeous woman. It kind of suits her. Isabella sits directly in my eyeline for the rest of the game. And she makes sure she catches it from time to time. And I can't help but watch her as she flicks her hair over her shoulder as she tucks it behind her ear, as she crosses her legs in that little sundress. She's even more distracting now, I've heard the warmth in her voice and the sound of her laugh. Whoever she is, her girlfriend is a lucky woman. With the games over and the certificates handed out, Paul has made himself useful in the clean-up operation. Mostly, I think, to avoid being hit on by Holly, who is loitering, clearly looking for that opportunity to talk to him before she goes. That also means that Isabella is still here, but she is unexpectedly chatty and so, so flirty. There's a hand on my arm, she's leaning into me, and there is this intensity in her eyes that she holds for just a second before she slips back into this sort of laughing, joking smile. I want everything that she is not saying in that look. And yeah, I probably do want it a little bit more right now, because I can't have it. Isabella runs through my thoughts quite a lot over the next day or so. And Paul is quite amused when I bring her up in conversation repeatedly. Still in wingman mode, Paul messages Isabella after the game. He claims it was for me, but I actually think he really did need to let her and Holly know that the car we had arrived at the game in was just a courtesy car. His ego was actually wounded when they hadn't believed him that he didn't own the little Vauxhall up that the garage had lent him. He was still somehow very proud of his car that had died in spectacular fashion on a roundabout. I mean, Paul actually blew up the engine, which seems kind of impressive and, well, expensive. I used the opportunity to apologise for my friend Paul and his ego and open the lines of communication between Isabella and I, only to find out that as flirty as she is, she's got a very gorgeous girlfriend who is in fact real, and they are rock solid. When I announced another game a week later in her area, we all decide to hang out afterwards, and it becomes clear, even with her girlfriend present, that if Isabella is going to jump ship for anyone, it would actually be Paul. They've proper hit it off, which makes sense because their personalities are actually pretty similar. And that, that's the bit that wasn't clicking for me with Isabella. Never mind the girlfriend and all of that sort of stuff. But now it's the whole Paul thing. It kind of helps me put Isabella in a box. I am not chasing things that are not meant for me. Not anymore. But I am going to enjoy flirting with her because, you know, I'm not dead after all.
Talking of which, I have noticed that I am in a much, much better place now with my general feelings. And I'm having a new problem. There seems to be a false top on my feelings. It's not something I've had to worry about too much recently. I mean, those happy feelings have been pretty fleeting. But it might be time to speak to the doc. And I do. I'm following her instructions. I come off the medication without issue or incident. They have done their job. And I have pretty much done my job at Paul's house. Which means I am back to my what's next drawing board. So far, I have found a program where they train you to be a ranch hand in the American Midwest. I found a snowboarder instructor course where a job guaranteed at the end if you pass all the tests and an intensive, very well paid train driver graduate recruitment program that I am just about eligible for. But the math requirements and drug testing make that last one probably the most unrealistic career choice of the three. Hmm, in the absence of any better ideas, the comedy comes back to mind. What if, what if I just tried it? What if I just give it a go? If I sit down with a blank bit of paper and a pen and nothing for hours. I Google how to do stand-up comedy. A lot of people seem to have the secret of comedy and they will share it with you if you pay $79.99 for a short course. Uh, maybe not. I think about all the comedians I love. Billy Connolly, Victoria Wood, Eddie Izzard. Storytellers. Hilarious storytellers. One and all. That's what I want. I want that feeling I get when I tell a story down the pub and it kills everybody at the table. How do I turn that into what Google keeps referring to as a tight 10. Lesson number one, you do not get to tell long rambling stories that only eventually get to a punchline until you have developed quite a level of familiarity with your audience. This is why your mates will put up with your stories. Lesson number two, ideally you need to be hitting a laugh every 30 seconds. And lesson number three, Figure out when you're funniest and build on that. All right. Let's not worry about a script. Let's just tell some stories. So I sat on my phone and I video myself standing in my own little living room upstairs telling and retelling stories to an empty room. I have no idea if this is funny or tragic. I need some kind of input to improve the output. But short of getting on an actual stage, which I am a million miles away from being ready to do, how do I get some feedback? I've got an idea. But if I do it, I'm kind of putting myself out there and I'm probably going to have to put my money where my mouth is. Unless everyone tells me that I'm not funny and I should never do it. Maybe that accountability, that fear of public shame, will be what I need to make it happen. So I chuck a bunch of my friends into a group online. I tell them my very crazy plan and I ask for their feedback. I'm going to post up some videos and they need to give me brutal, honest feedback. Because this is no time to let your friend go on stage with delusions of comedic grandeur, only to bomb because nobody told her she sucked. Yes, people need not apply. I want to know what you really think. 
and I get quite a lot of positive and constructive feedback and it goes right to my head fuck it let's give this thing a proper go and so on our town Facebook group I ask about some local open mic nights where a beginner might have a go at stand-up comedy the suggestions come in and so does a message this fella offers me a Saturday night slot it's a while away about two months ish and if I want it it's mine I snapped his arm off and I have got myself my first gig I am actually gonna do it I'm gonna do stand-up comedy oh my god I'm gonna do stand-up comedy I have just committed to doing stand-up comedy oh my god what am I doing I'm sweating just at the thought of it my central nervous system is now in overdrive okay calm down dear calm down everybody starts somewhere this this is your start line I start to wonder where I've actually agreed to do this gig I mean he says he's going to send through the details at some point soon I'm picturing a basement somewhere you know a dark sweaty room plywood box stage curtain for a backdrop and a patio security light turned spotlight an audience so close they'll be able to smell my fear oh I have made shit real now haven't I and I write and I tell and I rewrite and I retell my stories I share these videos with my little comedy group and slowly pub told stories are whittled into the shape of something that vaguely looks like comedy I start to relax a tiny bit this might just come together I mean I don't necessarily think it's going to be brilliant but I think something alright maybe is coming together and let's be honest nobody's expecting miracles at a local open mic night being a little bit rough around the edges is to be expected surely except the details of the gig have just landed in my inbox my already strongly caffeinated heart finds a new level for the palpitations i am now having as i read it i have booked my first gig at the town's cultural fringe festival second or third in size next to Edinburgh's and I've done this on the closing Saturday night out in their lovely and fancy garden stage fuck fuck I am so out of my depth here like can you drown without water because that sort of feels like what's happening right now because I am a nervous fucking wreck by the time Paul comes home, I can barely explain it to him. And that boy can generally make sense of me no matter how much of a stay I'm in. He gets himself up to speed somehow, some way, by which point I have decided that I need to tell this booker that I actually have no idea what I'm doing and that we've all made a terrible mistake. Paul doesn't so much support me as he does challenge me. What difference does a type of gig make? proper not proper people are still going to expect you to be funny you know so be funny and you know if you are going to bomb if you are going to suck why not do it somewhere nice at the very least don't quit now he says work on it like you've got plenty of time to quit if you need to annoyingly these are all actually pretty good points wanker back to work it is then and not just on the comedy front, right? I've only gone and applied for a job. I mean, I kind of had to. I've power washed the front and the back garden and the decking and the shed and I've 
power washed as far down the street as the hose will let me, dare I say it, I'm a little bit bored and, uh, well, you know, I don't completely want to run out of money. Now, when I say applied for a job, I do mean a job. One job, singular. It's the only job that's even remotely appealed to me in months. Well, you know, aside from the whole ranch hand thing, that is. Back in our little hipster town, a shop had opened a while back. They do the most gorgeous tweed suits for hire and made to measure. I'm so in love with them. I want one desperately. And these folks were a temp person for the summer. And as I say, it's back in my town, which is where I want to be. And it's going to make it a lot easier to hang out with my mates. So I'm chuffed to bits when I get the interview and I'm even more chuffed when they call and offer me the job while Paul and I are on another Ikea trip. It feels a little bit like I'm starting to put my life back together again, like one of these flat packs we're trying to get into the boot. Which, by the way, would be easier if it wasn't full of unnecessary speakers. Stupid boy. It turns out that transport is going to be a reoccurring issue in my life now because I actually need to get somewhere on time might have a cushy nine to five but thanks to the useless trains my commute actually takes me two hours each way it's a 20 minute drive fuck my life thank god it is summer have i mentioned how much i miss my car right now i am pleased to report though that that whole thing about you know walking being good for you and helping you out yeah that is true i actually feel a lot better for it Like I'm sort of actually seeing the world around me, noticing things I've been looking at but not seeing. The next couple of weeks pass in that sort of new job blur and somehow all of a sudden it's my birthday weekend, which means that the year is half done already. And right before my birthday, Paul invites Isabella over for drinks. I mean, happy day. She's easy on the eye and quite a lot of fun. And in fairness, I have got little interest in her since I realise she's more into him than she is into me. I'm more concerned about my first gig, which is now about a month away. And I still don't know if I can pull it off in front of an actual audience. One of my mates runs an adult social night and she says they'll have me in for the night. I can be a bit of entertainment for them. I can practice and they'll even give me 20 quid for my troubles. I mean... Seems like a pretty good deal to me. The day arrives and I've got a bit of time to kill after work before the social night begins. So I take my time and I slowly wander across to the school where they hold it. I'm feeling pretty good about my outfit and my set. I've got my nice ripped jeans on, long line black tee and, you know, my fresh, fresh white trainers. It's a classic me outfit. The quiff has gotten a little out of control lately, gotten a little long, so the hair's not quite as sharp as usual. And yet, still, as I walk through a residential street, two lads feel the need to slow their car to shout at me. It's a friendly, Oi, you lezer, to start with. Infuriated that their friendly greeting does not get the warm welcome they wanted, they continue to shout after me. Oi, you, who, you ugly dyke, I'm fucking talking to you. I keep walking. The road starts to fall away below as the footpath rises and I'm glad of the distance opening up between them and me. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see the passenger undo his seatbelt and reach for the door handle. 
Oh God, please let him stay in the car. Please let him stay in the car. Don't get out. I don't need this right now. Please don't get out of the car. I up my pace a little and look dead ahead as I hear a car door open and close. Can't hear if he's coming at me. The grass would muffle the sound of his footsteps and I don't want to look back in case like he's right there. I have to move a little faster. Every third or fourth word I can hear coming from them is dyke. But the voices don't actually sound like they're getting closer, so I risk a look, and the passenger is half in the car, half out. They've stopped. He seems to have dropped something, and now they're blocking traffic as I turn the corner on the street and leave them behind. The school is just ahead. I'm about half an hour early, and I don't care because I just think it's a good idea to possibly be where the people are right now. God, I hate moments like that. The social club I'm doing this practice gig at tonight is for adults with learning difficulties. And I'm not going to lie, they're a tough crowd. Some of them have even brought their own jokes, which might be better than mine. So I'm getting even more nervous now, frankly. And I'm so nervous that I don't really know how it went. I mean, I heard some laughter at some point, but God, this is terrifying. And this is with an audience that are actually incredibly kind to me. And I know that I have got so much to work on as I head home. I mean, what I'm doing is sort of close. It's like an imitation of stand-up comedy, but it is not there yet. Everyone, though, is in my corner. There hasn't even been one doubter so far. My mate Johnny has been an incredible sounding board and super supportive too. And if ever someone would tell me I'm kidding myself about this whole thing, it's Johnny. His belief, his little push, gives me the confidence I need. By the way, you get to thank him for this show too. He's one of the ones who pushed for the podcast. Phoebe and Marco, also great cheerleaders. And Phoebe is all for it, especially since she has become the Guilty Feminist's biggest fan. I mean, I've listened to a couple of them just for her, and actually it is pretty good. But it's her next recommendation that I absolutely love and that blows my mind. Have you heard of Hannah Gadsby, she asks. Nope. Watch her show on Netflix, she says. Nanette. I mean, it's pretty heavy in places, so make sure you're in the right mood, but I think you're going to relate to it, Phoebe says. Relatable media content for me on Netflix. Well, colour me curious. So I sit down in my tiny living room with Simon and press play on Nanette. And there is Hannah Gadsby, short haired, wearing glasses and a lovely blazer, centre stage at the Sydney Opera House. And the camera never leaves her. No close-ups of audience members shrieking hysterically with laughter. You sort of feel as though you're lucky to have found this film of this night in a room where a comedian and an audience connect so well they all forgot the cameras were even there. Or maybe it's that Gadsby's anger centres her so firmly that the camera can't possibly look away. I can't look away as I'm seeing pieces of my own story being told with a fury I can feel myself. For many, hers is a story they've never heard or even considered before. It blows their minds and Gadsby continues to keep the explosion going throughout the gig. I know Gadsby's story. I've lived it. I understand it. I'm nodding along in agreement. A lot of this isn't new information to me. It's a comfort to see my story or parts of it out there. 
that someone else has had this, has felt this, has made jokes out of it. And all of this is being articulated by this incredible wordsmith in front of me. I wasn't expecting Hannah Gadsby to teach me anything, I'll be honest with you. Least of all, the root of my comedy. The reason why I'm funny. Comedy, Gadsby explains, is about tension. We comedians are supposed to whip up our batch of tension and then what we do is we provide you with a release for that tension that we created, the punchline. But if you're a butch woman who won't play by the rules, then you regularly are the tension in a room. You don't have to whip it up. Just your presence and your gender nonconformity does it for you. And so, like Gadsby, I've learned to diffuse the bomb that I am. Diffuse the tension I create when I go into a room. The tension I cause by my unwillingness to play along. Jokes haven't just been a defence mechanism. They've been key to my survival. And self-deprecation has played a huge part in a lot of those jokes, in a lot of those moments that needed diffusing. Hannah Gadsby is reminding me not to make myself the punchline. The rest of the world will do that for me. And if I am going to go around throwing punches, I need to make sure I always punch up. Hello, you loyal and lovely listeners. It has been a big week in the well-established household. Thanks to you and all of the lovely people that you have shared the show with, it has just reached 20,000 downloads. 20,000. When I started out, honest to God, my goal was 500. And if I remember someone else's maths correctly, 20,000 is 40 times that. So it's a huge thank you for listening and sharing the show. Honestly, I am bursting with pride. Thank you all for the privilege of your time. Don't forget, Rate and review the show wherever you listen and come and follow me on Instagram at wellestablishedlesbian. Whatever you're up to, I hope you have a good one and catch you next time for chapter 55. Take care of you.